The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Pod... No. Welcome to the Democracy Podcast... No. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. All right. Well, welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. Uh, my name is Justin Kemp, and I am fortunate to have with me Dr. Luis uh, Cabrera. Uh, he is the author of The Humble Cosmopolitan, Rights, Diversity, and Trans-State uh, Democracy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me, Justin. I'm happy to be with you. Okay, cool. Very, very exciting today. This is an absolutely, truly fascinating book for a lot of reasons. Technically, it discusses political theory in terms of cosmopolitanism and human rights, but it's also a really deep dive into the ideas of Ambedkar, uh, the human rights of Dalits, and an examination of even political psychology. Uh, before we go too deep into the book, though, can you tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself, your background, and some of your research interests? Sure. I uh, started my professional career as a journalist with the Associated Press, in, uh, mostly in Seattle, Washington. And um, that, was, uh, that was really good experience you know, for developing the, uh, the interview skills and that sort of thing that have helped me the uh, the work that I've been doing, especially over the last 10 years or so. And um, I transitioned into academia. I was working as a journalist um, while I was completing grad school and then uh, just became an academic full-time starting about 2002. And I've been pursuing questions of global justice, uh, but more and more questions of global justice, uh, the normative moral questions, but as they intersect with empirical questions, with how things work on the ground and, and how people are struggling in, against injustices around the world. Okay. Now, the book itself goes into a lot of those kind of topics, but it, the name of the book, the title itself is very interesting. Can you describe to me um, what is the hum humble cosmopolitan? Mm. The idea was that, um, so I should, I should back up a little bit and explain that uh, the question I've been pursuing, you know, the global justice question is, uh, what do individuals owe to other individuals? You know, we're, we're very comfortable thinking of that uh, within our communities, our local communities, our cities, our, our states, our commonwealths, and then our nation states. Uh, you know, what do we owe to other Americans? What do we owe to other Australians, other Mexicans, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and then uh, the global justice literature, the people who've been working on that for, you know, uh, since Kant, but uh, certainly the past uh, 40 years or so, have uh, encouraged us to think broad, more broadly, what do we owe to others beyond our national borders? And that's been one of the questions I've been pursuing. And um, so I've written three books now, and they've been, they've been looking at aspects of that question. And the aspect that uh, this book looks at is uh, whether it can be justifiable to talk in terms of human rights, in terms of universal morality, 
in a world of great diversity. And so if you're a cosmopolitan, somebody who thinks we owe quite a lot to people in other countries, wherever we're located, um, then you've got an idea of a universal morality. Um, can that be squared with an appropriate political humility? Or is it just some sort of neo-imperialism, especially if you're a person with a European or American accent coming and talking about human rights to people in other countries, et cetera. And there, there's a lot of criticism of cosmopolitans, of universal human rights people, um, that they're being arrogant. That's the basic criticism. So this book was my attempt to answer some of those very important questions. Can you advocate universal moral principles and rights and still do it in a way that is not neo-imperialistic, that is not arrogant? Um, and I've, uh, I've, I've tried to give an answer to that. That's really interesting because actually right now, one of the books that I'm reading is Exit from Hegemony. It's by Alexander Cooley and Daniel Nexon. And it talks about how American hegemonic power is no longer as strong as it, as it once was, how we're moving towards, whether we like to or not, moving towards a multipolar society. And with that being the case, it comes back to exactly like you said, uh, we're going to have to have a society or a global community where nobody has arrogance that they're able to impose things on other people if we're going to maintain human rights. Because the United States isn't going to be able to impose those standards or norms on, on the rest of the world as easily. So, um, yeah. that's. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, what I would add to that is that uh, it, it won't be able to, and it really shouldn't be able to, uh, certainly unilaterally. Uh, the U.S., uh -huh. even if it's enough, that's part of the... Uh, the big idea of the book, if you will, that uh, global problems require more global solutions, and those solutions should come about in more accountable and more democratic ways so that everyone gets a chance to speak, everyone gets a chance to press their interests in uh, global public fora. You know, um, the end state would be some form of global democracy. We're a long way from there, but in the meantime, we can, we can look uh, very seriously at more accountable regional and then global organizations. And that's where politi cosmopolitan political humility would come in. The idea that everyone should be equally situated as global citizens insofar as we can do that with the institutions we currently have, and then with the institutions we might be able to develop over time. Um, and, you know, we've seen some of those begin to emerge at the regional level in Europe, certainly, but also South America, a little bit in Southeast Asia, some other places. Sure, sure. Now, I, I want to take a step back, and I'd like to ask you about Ambedkar uh, is somebody who I've, I've read about before. Um, I actually stumbled on his ideas in a book uh, called Great Soul, a biography on Gandhi. And it was interesting because it was all about Gandhi, but I spent my whole time thinking, who is this, who's this other guy? And so I was really drawn to your book when you made him and his political thought the centerpiece uh, to some of your ideas. Can you talk a little bit about what drew you to his work? Sure. Um, I discovered him completely by accident, but it was one of those really serendipitous discoveries. And it's one of those where you kind of slap your head and say, wow, how could I have been so ignorant? But the truth is that uh, Ambedkar, until very recently, has not been well known uh, by most scholars who are not uh, specifically focused on India. His work is becoming more and more widely known among political theorists, among democratic theorists especially, and outside of India. And I think that's just going to continue. So I, did, I wasn't introduced to Ambedkar until I was in India, 
actually. And uh, so I, I knew that when I began looking at how to pursue the questions of this book, that I needed to go speak to people who had been dealing directly with some of these questions. So I was looking around the world for case studies and uh, came upon a group of Dalit activists who've been reaching out to the United Nations human rights regime uh, to try to press their own government for more action against caste discrimination. So Dalits are the people who used to be called untouchables at the bottom or outside of the Indian, the Hindu caste system. And uh, the National Campaign on Dalit Human Rights had been very systematically reaching out to the UN human rights regime, to the European Parliament, to the US Congress, to try to pressure India to actually do more to enforce the laws against caste discrimination that are on the books, among other things. And so I wanted to speak to them because they were using human rights language to press back against what we might call a, a dominant uh, national or localized morality. Uh, and on the other side, you would have people, especially Hindu nationalists, who would say, no, this is our culture, um, you're, you're uh, being disloyal, you're making the country look bad, we can deal with this internally, uh, and in fact, not everything about the caste system is objectionable, or the Varna system, the broader system. And, um, and so it seemed like a very good site for investigation of some of the issues that I was interested in. And so I went there uh, to their headquarters in Delhi, and there was a, there was a painting on the wall of a, uh, you know, sort of an unassuming looking uh, middle-aged man, uh, you know, very respectable looking and, uh, and you know, dressed uh, in, uh, in Western dress in that particular occasion, but he could have, he could have also been in uh, traditional Hindu dress. But, um, and I said, who's that? And, and they kind of took a pause and, and they said, well, that's on Bedkar, of course. And he was the, um, if you like, for an American audience, it, you might think of the Martin Luther King of Dalit movements, you know, a great uh, charismatic social figure, but also a very deep thinker. And he was, uh, he was trained as an economist. Um, he had, you know, uh, two, the equivalent of two PhDs and uh, was, uh, was a great legal mind. He, um, he wrote, he, he led the drafting of the Constitution of India. So um, I was introduced to Ambedkar and I began immersing myself in his work. And more and more, I realized that his some of the problems he was dealing with were the problems I wanted to deal with. How do you respectfully try to invoke universals against a dominant um, local morality or a dominant local system of norms uh, and say, no, actually, even though the local system doesn't um, necessarily recognize human moral equality or political equality, I think it should. These are my arguments. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time digging into his arguments and, and really leaning on them quite heavily. Well, it's interesting you say that he's similar to Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States, because it, it's almost blasphemous to say this, but he's more of, if, if he was a Martin Luther King Jr. who happened to be a founding father at the same time. Um, mm. I mean, that's, it's, it's just, it's almost like he, for Indian society, uh, it, it'd almost be another level. And that's hard to imagine in the United States. So. Yeah, it would be, it would be as if um, in 19, you know, 1955, 1960, the country had said, you know what, uh, the constitution we have is not working. It's got some real structural problems. We need to revise this thing. And uh, so Dr. King, can you please lead the drafting committee? You know, it would have been like that. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine sometimes, but I, okay, so 
I, I'm not very well versed in on-bet car, so I'm going to lean on you on this. But my understanding is he was both an ally and an adversary of Gandhi in different mm. ways. Um, mm. Can you explain a little bit about how his views are differentiated from, from Gandhi? Sure, sure. I mean, Gandhi is well known, and r very rightly so, as a champion of the an anti-untouchability efforts. I mean, his uh, at one point, as he describes in uh, one of his autobiographical works, his wife nearly left him uh, because he insisted that everyone in his compound, in his school, um, clean toilets themselves. Uh, and that would be a job that would typically be relegated to the very lower caste people. Uh, and his wife didn't want to do that. She felt it was beneath her dignity, as he tells the story, and uh, you know, threatened to leave, and, and so they had to work that out. Uh, so Gandhi was very much committed to the elimination of untouchability. He was not necessarily, at least uh, in a lot of his writings, uh, committed to the elimination of the caste system overall, or at least the Varna system. The Varna system is the division of individuals into occupational Varnas. So you have the Brahmins at the top, um, Kshatras, um, and uh, you know on on down Shudras to, uh, and they're all associated with um, with different uh, traditional occupations down to the bottom where you've got the outcasts or the people who are outside the caste system and that's where Dalits are. And uh, what Ambedkar said was, you know, we can't reform the caste system, we have to annihilate the caste system. So his most famous work is called Annihilation of Caste. And he was very, very critical of Gandhi and some of the other leadership in the uh, Indian National Congress um, for their positions on untouchability, on, on caste. And he thought they just didn't go far enough. So um, I would say that uh, most of the time he was, he was an acerbic critic of Gandhi rather than an ally. He was really pushing from behind. No, no, that's totally fair. Um, and that's, that's a great explanation on the difference between the two. Now, something that, that struck me in your work was how specific you got into the struggles of the Dalits. And I, most, most educated Westerners, I think, are aware of, of the untouchables. They've heard of them. But there's, there's a sense that after Indian independence that it all, all the struggles went away. Mm. And it, you know, um, there's a sense that hey, they took care of things and things got better. You gave some very specific examples that went well beyond just theoretical discussion of human rights about some of the specific struggles that they've got. Can you, can you kind of illuminate on what some of those were? Uh, yeah, and I can bring it into the current context too. So one of the real struggles for the Dalit activists has been this idea that, oh, that was all taken care of, you know, because untouchability, um, the recognition of untouchability was barred in the Constitution. And, uh, you know, there, there's been affirmative action for 50 or 60 or 70 years. And, and so, you know, there, uh, a lot of times the activists would describe, you know, taking their concerns to to officials or ordinary people and being told that, uh, no, no, you, you people have everything now. You know, I, my, my child can't even get a place in university. Um, you've got everything going for you. And you know, that's a, it's a common refrain in struggles over affirmative action around the world. Um, so what they uh, felt like they had to do was to document the continuing injustices and to talk about all the times um, that caste uh, discrimination is involved in people being abused in the villages or in people 
um, you know, being denied employment and, and all these sorts of things. So they had to exhaustively document it. And I think um, that parallels what we've seen in the United States. And actually, there's a long tradition of Dalit leaders and African-American leaders uh, corresponding, taking notes from one another, etc., cetera, uh, going all the way back to Ambedkar and W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, they, had a, they had a correspondence in the 1940s. Uh, so just as Du Bois and some of the other African-American groups would document all, the, all of the lynchings, all of the injustices, and take it to the U.S. government, so the, the Dalit groups have done that. And I think now um, one of the things we can notice about the current moment uh, when you know, structural injustice, structural racial injustice is so much at the foreground in the United States is that people have been able to document it more and more. So uh, now we've got all of these video, uh, all this video evidence of police officers reacting in certain ways to African-American uh, people in custody that they wouldn't otherwise, you know, of, of course from George Floyd, but on down. And, and I think um, that's, uh, that's a recurring theme and the better the evidence gets, the, the more able uh, people like uh, Dalit activists and African-American activists are able to make the case. Now, obviously, the United States has had a lot of protests uh, in the wake of the George Floyd um, uh, death. Um, I, I guess I should say George Floyd murder. But uh, in terms of India, I have not read of any protests going on, and I'm not sure if that's because of my uh, ignorance, the, the articles that I read. Is, has there been any response in terms of uh, Dalit activism because of what's going on in the United States? Mm. Um, there has been, well, you know, India's had a, a very vigorous lockdown. Um, yes. So people have, have not, have been even less able to get out in the streets, but uh, there's a long tradition of Dalit activism. And I've just seen some, you know, uh, some traffic on Twitter and some of the other social media sites where people are, are talking about this, you know, um, they're drawing some of the parallels. So uh, I would say, watch this space. Let's see when the lockdown begins to ease, if we see uh, some similar things emerging, because certainly, um, you know, Dalit activists and ordinary people will get out in the streets in big numbers in India. There's a long tradition of that. Now, what amazed me in your book is the way how, and, and this parallels the instance with African-Americans where it's not necessarily um, legal, discri uh, legal discrimination where police officers are literally following a law like segregation was, but those police officers are still acting in ways that that um, perpetuate it, racial injustice. In your book, you talk about ways that people in society perpetuate injustice on the Dalits. Um, cases of sexual abuse for some of the women, cases of uh, people being treated extraordinarily different. I, I just um, want to make sure that we hammer home that it wasn't, I mean, there's very specific examples where you can look at as an outsider and say that is just unacceptable. Um, mm -hmm. do, you, do you have some examples that you might want to just kind of mention before we move on? Oh, well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I hesitate. Uh, well, let me, let me contextualize it in this way. Yeah. Um, for example one could give of discrimination against Dalits in India. Um, you know, I, I'm an American citizen, a U.S. citizen, so uh, uh, that's the context that is most um, natural for me to turn to. But 
one could almost give a, you know, a like-for-like like example of discrimination and atrocities, as they're called, in uh, the United States. So I would, I would um, preface it with that. And then uh, I, I would simply say that, um, you know, the documentation that Dalit activists have been able to give, you know, not just um, murders of people who, you know, so the typical pattern would be uh, a Dalit person would stand up for themselves, someone's trying to take some of their land, uh, and they might be killed. Or a, um, a Dalit woman is raped and killed, you know, targeted because of her, her lower status, um, or, you know, many other many other cases like that and and um you know there are as many of those as you could find uh, in the united states now the difference might be that um the that kind of direct violence by society by ordinary individuals against african americans would would have been more prevalent um you know a few decades ago but certainly we see many of the same patterns uh one thing i would want to say about the Dalit activist is that when I think of the humble cosmopolitan, I actually have a specific person in mind. And um, he's one of the Dalit activists. He was the convener, which is sort of the head person of the national campaign on Dalit human rights uh, at various times. And he also led the outreach to the United Nations. And um, I spoke to him uh, a few times and we, we keep up a correspondence. His name is Paul Devakar. <clears throat> And I felt like he taught me a lot about what it could mean to be a humble cosmopolitan because he said, you know, at, at one point he was getting concerned um, because I was um, talking to a lot of Dalit activists and getting their insights. I was also talking to the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is the Hindu nationalist party that's in power uh, in India right now. And it has a lot of parallels to sort of um, Trump style uh, right wing populism. And uh, it's led by Narendra Modi. So there are a lot of the, the same sorts of attitudes. And he was getting concerned that uh, some of the, the things I was talking about were going to um, result in, in people possibly being targeted. And, and it's a very valid concern. And he said, you know, what you must do is situate us as people from the soil. Uh, we are people who have uh, worked and struggled all of our lives to build up our communities, to build up our democracy. And what we're asking for is uh, simple social justice. You know, we're not asking for the United Nations to, you know, come in and, and change everything. We're, we're simply asking for justice. We're asking for democracy. Um, so when I, when I think of the humble cosmopolitan, I think of somebody indicating sort of a multi-level institutional model at the regional and then global level where people would be able to appeal to higher institutions and say, we've got these documented injustices. We're not able to fully get justice in our, in our local or national communities. Um, can there be accountability at this higher level? And, um, and at the same time, he's saying, we love our society. We want the best for our society. Um, we're not um, trying to transform it into something it's not. We just want uh, justice to obtain more equally. Okay. That, that kind of brings me to my next question. Um, in terms of humility, the opposite of that, of course, is arrogance, which is another concept that you talk a lot about in your book. By the way, I love the way that you weave in lots of terms that, that you then kind of create as, as concepts that, that are not oftentimes discussed in other types of political theory. It, it really helps you grasp the ideas behind the book. But um, the concept of arrogance, uh, Ambedkar refers to, er refers to the arrogance of caste Indians, but you're also a little bit wary of the arrogance of 
cosmopolitanism, what it can kind of fall into. Can you describe how arrogance corrupts politics, both on the state level and also on potentially on the, the global level? Well, there's a there's a, a well-developed literature, an emerging literature on political vices, and I've I've leaned on some of that. Certainly, there's some very good uh, authors there. And uh, one of the things I would say is that uh, arrogance, as it has been defined increasingly in that literature, is where you don't listen to the other side. So imagine a democracy where the standing of others to speak is not recognized. Um, and you can, there's another vice, uh, political vice called political recalcitrance, which we see a lot in democracies these days, as democracy has been uh, retreating, receding in various countries where uh, people are granted the formal right to speak, you know, the opposition, but they're completely ignored. Nothing they say is really taken on board, and uh, the majority rules in whatever way it wants to. Um, so arrogance, I've argued, is what we see at the global level. Um, because we still have a system where we don't have well-developed institutions where people have standing to speak um, from other countries, et cetera. Or we've got the United Nations where you've got standing, but it doesn't have decision-making power. So uh, we live in a system where the powerful states are able, uh, in many cases, to do what they want to do without really having to take input from others. And, and that's a situation of political arrogance. And, it's a, and that's the big concern that I've identified with the state's system, um, that it's not, uh, it's not recalcitrance, but arrogance that we face. And so a dose of cosmopolitan political humility is, uh, is a prescription that I've offered. That's interesting, the way that you talk about people have the right to say stuff, say things, but not, not included in the actual participation of governance. Uh, I, I've, I've written a little bit about this on my blog, where I write about uh, some of the books Robert Dahl wrote about. And one of the things I find interesting is there's a lot of stress on inclusive forms of participation, but I think it's necessary for democracy to not just have inclusivity in terms of participation of, of the system, but also in terms of the governance itself. That if you're not actually including people in terms of allowing them to express what concerns that they have even if they're not in the majority, you've got to at least take their ideas into account as you're crafting um, policies, laws, things like that. Um, is that kind of the direction that you're? No, that's a, that's a good point. And that's one of the reasons that I do support uh, certain forms of judicial review, of legislation, uh, because it gives you one more mechanism of challenge, one more path by where people whose um, you know, claims of justice, claims of rights have been denied can say, actually, no, the majority might have decided in its own interest in this case, but um, there are reasons to think that our constitution, that our legislation actually supports the kind of rights I'm claiming. And those are, those are very standard cases in the United States, you know, where, for example, um, gay people would uh, say, you know, we've got a right to marry as well. It eventually works its way up to the Supreme Court. They, um, <coughs> you know, that's not a magic pill, uh, judicial review. It's simply another mechanism of challenge. Uh, and I, I look to the European Union as a laboratory where you've got not only national levels of challenge in that way or mechanisms, but also some regional mechanisms where people actually what my country has done has violated my rights under this uh, regional European um, convention or directive. 
and I would like to challenge this to the regional court. And uh, said that would be a useful and appropriate extension of this kind of challenge, this kind of ability for people to press their own interests and their own rights claims. That's interesting. You bring up judicial review. And I know in the book, you talk a little bit about international courts. Speaking about Dahl again, uh, in his 1956 book, I believe, uh, Preface to a Theory of Democracy, I found it really interesting because he was writing about how he had more faith in majoritarianism than he did in the judicial process because other than Brown versus Board of Education, he, he felt that there hadn't been significant civil rights um, cases that had actually come out of the Supreme Court. And as you go through the history of those, you see things like Plessy versus Ferguson. You see cases like um, Dred Scott is the most famous that the court was actually used to impose, uh, to take away civil rights from people oftentimes. On an international level, especially with the rise of China, uh, Russia becoming very involved, a lot of authoritarian countries are trying to express themselves. Do you have any fears that some of these global institutions uh, and an international court could somehow be corrupted by that? where instead of protecting human rights, it, it begins to threaten human rights. Yeah, democracy is, has been and always will be under threat. Um, and when I say democracy, I, uh, I, should, I should take a step back here and say that um, my justification for democratic rule is a little bit different than Dahl's and some of the other people. Um, sure. <laughs> you that uh, I take a very instrumentalist reading of democracy, the value of democracy. And uh, what that means is um, for me, the, uh, the prize is um, appropriate uh, rights specification, appropriate rights protections for all individuals. And um, the least bad way to try to get there is um, some form of constitutional democracy, or at least I've argued that, um, among others. So this is a very familiar idea from Churchill, um, you know, that uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have ever been tried. Uh, before that, um, Bedkar was actually uh, quoting Harold Kasky, another um, a British social scientist, political scientist, talked about the same sort of thing. You know, if, if democracy's got one virtue, it's that it can often hold um, elected leaders to account. And um, I, again, I don't think there's any pill, but the more mechanisms um, that uh, are available for people who might be the victims of injustice to press their own interests and their own rights claims, I think the closer we can get to something that might look like adequate rights protections, but also adequate rights specifications where um, more people get input into what the package of rights, the constitutionalized package of rights should actually look like. So again, we can come back to the gay marriage idea, you know, whereas, um, and I, I think uh -huh. uh, one thing about societies is that they do tend to allow for more dissent. Uh, they do tend to have a more vigorous press and more vigorous um, avenues of protest. And so you uh, groups are able to press their interests. And I think all of those things combined can sometimes lead us to, to more appropriate rights outcomes. Yeah, I, I would agree with you entirely. I mean, I, I believe that unless if you're defending individual rights, um, especially 
opportunities to express your opinions and your thoughts, society cannot truly become a democracy. It's not, it's not truly democratic. Um, especially if you think of democracy as more of an ideal rather than just being a, a regime where you say, Hey, you meet this minimum threshold and you're there. But, um, I, I do want to kind of ask a little bit, um, okay, so on a global scale, one of the things that I, I get a sense of is that you feel that when we have injustices at a local level or at the government level, you have a lot of faith that if we could expand that universe to include all of uh, a larger section of humanity, that we could that people are going to be more more fair to those minorities. It reminds me a lot of Madison's Federalist 10, where he says, hey, uh, a larger federal government is going to be the best defense or a larger uh, area, ge geographic area, is going to be a better defense against factions because when you have a very small state, very small government, it's more likely you're going to get a majority to gain up on, on a small minority. Am I reading this right about the direction you kind of take that you feel you have faith that if we expand out the number of people that we're looking for, we'll get rid of some of those prejudices because you'll have enough outsiders that will say that's unjust? Um, I would say that uh, faith is the right word and Madison <coughs> is the right comparison. If you're saying we both have faith in um, the idea that people will tend to follow their own interests as they perceive them to be. Um, so I have faith that the, um, the Chinese leadership as it's currently constituted will uh, try to take over Hong Kong and, and make Hong Kong just like any other mainland city and, and take away those, those rights protections that have enabled that dissent, that's enabled it to be a little bit different. Um, that's not a very um, optimistic sort of faith, but I think uh, if, if we take a defensive stance toward politics, toward uh, democratic institutions, uh, in the same way that Madison and some of, the, uh, some of his contemporaries did, then um, I, I, to me that, that just seems like the appropriate way to go because we're dealing with the most basic and fundamental rights. So uh, you're right to point out China. So I don't advocate simply extending global democracy right now, binding global democracy. Sure. Um, so what, what do I advocate? Well, I'm gonna have to, um, I'm gonna have to say I'm writing that book right now, uh, <laughs> another 10 years for it. But, uh, but I am, um, I'm trying to close off, if you like, the last piece of this long argument I've been trying to develop in how could we get to, a, how could we get closer to a system? How could we make more progress toward a system where uh, rights can be appropriately specified and protected um, with more input from more people? So that would include, you know, all the Tibetans who have suffered under that Chinese regime, the, the Uyghurs who are currently suffering, the Hong Kongers who are suffering, who are seeing their interests, um, trying to press their interests, but being suppressed. Um, and China is the big hard question for anyone who is trying to support and advocate for um, the current institutions that we have or for deeper and more democratic institutions. 
And um, for me, the answer is probably going to be that um, these major powers have to be constitutional democracies in themselves before we can think of anything like a binding global democracy. However, sure. um, we can continue to advocate for more accountability for countries like the United States, which um, uh, you know, take on their appropriate leadership role in supporting institutions, supporting rule of law and democracy around the world, not imposing it, um, but supporting it, supporting the institutions we do have, like the World Health Organization. And I think that's a, um, that's a battle right now, um, whether we're going outward looking or more inward looking, that's being fought not only in the United States, but in Brazil, um, in countries around the world, you know, some of the the, the powerful countries and then the rising powers. And, and if we're going to be outward looking, what are those global institutions going to look like? Are we going to strengthen the current system and see if it can be advanced? Or are we going to fall back into more of a plural system where China's one power trying to press its own interests, the US is another power, Europe, et cetera. Um, you know, I hope that it will be support for the current institutions and then trying to advance and transform them. Uh, but that's that's not a foregone conclusion at all. So if I if I read what you you've said here and what what I've I've read from you in your book uh, correctly though, the the one of the big obstacles towards saying hey we can do more um, democracy on a global scale is that on the international level, it's inclusion means including states rather than including the individuals who belong to those states. And I think what you're hoping to do is get to a point where the individuals who belong to those states have a greater voice rather than just the government who claims to represent them as a greater voice. Am I right in, in that kind of conclusion for you? Yes, yes. I, I mean, the end state would be something like a binding constitutionalized global democracy, but one that only dealt um, at a global level with truly global problems. You know, the European Union, all federal systems have some principle of subsidiarity where you, you uh, deal with a certain number or a certain set of issues at the, at the highest level. You know, the U.S. Congress doesn't deal with, you know, dog catcher regulations for the city of Scottsdale, Arizona, something like that. Um, it deals with uh, issues that are truly national, you know, stimulus payments um, when the country is like that. That's something that is uh, a national problem and is best handled uh, usually at the national level. So there are truly global problems. You know, climate change has not gone away. Um, and that's the kind of problem we're dealing with. Um, you know, there, there are others, I mean, nuclear weapons is still a, a global problem and, and we'll have other sorts of issues that uh, are going to arise over time um, that are global threats, global problems and need global coordination. You know, so uh, one of the things we've seen, so I'll say two things about possibilities. Um, the first is, okay, the global problems. And one of the things we've seen repeatedly is that states and people within them seem to realize that global solutions are needed. They seem to acknowledge that. They're just really, really hard to achieve. Um, so you get the Paris Agreement, and that was remarkable for every single country in the world uh, signing on to a single set of, of commitments. Uh, you know, and uh, they've been criticized being as, as robust as they needed to be, but uh, they were actually, you know, it was, it was real sacrifice, real change, 
um, real commitment to, to these sorts of things. And of course, the U.S. under the Trump administration pulled out, um, which was unfortunate, but it was an example of what I, what I like to call uh, the shadow world government, which is, seems like a, a strange term. But again and again, we see states coming together to create these sort of state-like institutions at the global level. You know, what is the United Nations, if not, you know, it's got a, a Congress or a parliament uh, in the General Assembly. It's got all these uh, organizations that are trying to provide, or agencies trying to provide global social goods, economic development, um, you know, uh, against diseases and pandemics, uh, all these other things that states are called on to do, we also ask the UN to do at some level, at the global level. So uh, there, the idea there would be, we do have truly global problems requiring global solutions, and in their best moments, states acknowledge this and actually try to do it. The other one, the one that probably I think uh, would get the most attention over the next several decades would be the regional level. And I think there's a lot of ground that can be gained at the regional level. You know, the European Union has given us this amazing laboratory for um, how this might be approached, mistakes that can be made, you know, uh, good, good things that can be done, um, good institutions, bad institutions, what to do, what not to do. Uh, so I never hold it up as a model. I say it's a laboratory that we can study and learn from. And, uh, you know, there might be specific circumstances that made the EU possible, but again, other states have tried to replicate um, or, or create their own regional organizations, not the EU, but something else around the world. So I've spent a month last year in Uruguay studying Mercosur, excuse me, the common market. Uruguay is, is the most fascinating country in all of yeah. Latin America. How It gets a 99 on Freedom House's measure of democracy. It's got a, a, an incre I'm not a big fan of direct democracy, but they've made it work on a level that nobody else has, including Switzerland. Um, I'm fascinated by that country. It is. It, it's a really interesting country. And they legalize marijuana, you know, so wherever you go, you smell marijuana on the streets. And, <laughs> and it's, I guess it's no big deal. Uh, you know, having been raised, uh, being a person of a certain age, having been raised in the United States, I always want to say, oh, no, no. But uh, <laughs> the U.S. has changed a little bit, too, since I lived there last. Um, but you've got uh, Mercosur, you've got uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is one where the state's much more jealously protect their sovereignty. But we have seen these things emerge around the world and states are realizing that, you know, development works better when it's regionally coordinated, environmental issues that they all care about work better when they're regionally coordinated. So there's this impulse to acknowledge that um, the state by itself is not enough to deal with some problems. Uh, and I think that at least gives us a little momentum, a little bit of wedge to keep pushing uh, for more of this accountability from these kinds of institutions. Uh, and, you know, it's politics, it's hard. Uh, a lot of these states that dominate these institutions don't want uh, civil society to have more input. That's been a real struggle in Southeast Asia um, and elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a place to focus the struggle. So that's what I see right now. No, that's, that's, that's good. Uh... No, that's, that's a lot to think about. Now, I want to get back to some of the concepts in the book. In particular, you talk about duty. And I've been thinking a lot about it, even before I read your book, about the concept of duty, obligations, responsibilities. It definitely, it's, it's something that feels like it's lacking. Everybody, even conservatives, talk about rights that they have 
things that they deserve to get, but nobody's talking about the responsibilities that they have, especially those in power. So um, can you explain a little bit about how global duties actually reinforce a sense of humility? Mm-hmm. Um, every rights claim sets up a corresponding duties claim. If, um, if I have a, a right not to be killed, everyone else has a duty not to unjustly kill me. You know, um, I mean, I can forfeit that right if I, if I start shooting up a shopping mall or something, you know, they can justifiably take me down. Uh, but, uh, but every right has a corresponding duty. One of the interesting things about the Indian constitution is it was amended later on um, to add a, a non-binding uh, charter of responsibility. So it's got this charter of fundamental rights that's very familiar from the U.S. Bill of Rights, many other constitutions. And then later on, there was added a charter of fundamental duties. And um, that, that seems to be one of the things people are talking about more and more. Should there be a global charter of duties to go along with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? And there have been some attempts to, to develop that. Um, one of the things I've been uh, looking at for at least 15 years now is if there are universal human rights of some sort, you know, even if we can't specify them with absolute precision because we're not, uh, you know, we don't have all knowledge, you know, we're not omniscient. Um, if there are rights, what are the duties that might correspond to those rights? Uh, if there is a right to food as specified in various treaties that states have bound themselves to, what might be the responsibilities of individuals to help ensure that everyone has adequate access to nutrition? Uh, that sort of thing. And, and so for me, it's, um, it's been framed as global citizenship. And one of the things I've, I've argued is that um, to act as a global citizen is to try to help um, others secure their own rights and to support the kinds of institutional transformation that might make that more possible. So at the regional level, at the global level, the sort of things we've been talking about. No, that's, that's good. It's the idea of right of responsibilities and duties always fascinates me because I think of, I think of that as almost the conservative impulse that we have, the, conser- the conservative in a positive sense, that it thinks about, okay, we need to preserve meaningful institutions. We, we have an obligation to things that matter. Uh, liberalism, to me, oftentimes focuses on the rights aspect of it, saying, hey, we need to protect people. We need to look at people who are less fortunate. Um, but I, I think that when you think about it from that aspect, liberalism and conservatism oftentimes aren't necessarily automatically polar opposites. They, they, they can be, but they look at two different aspects. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is it, interesting to talk about trying to find duties that you have as a global citizen, because I've been thinking a lot about the concept, the, the idea that if you have a right to democracy, maybe it's better to not think about it as a right, but to think about it as a responsibility and an obligation. Because if you have an, a response, if you are part of a democracy, you're part of making sure that it runs effectively. So your response, if the government's not working effectively, that that's your responsibility to step up and find a way to make it work. You have an obligation to elect candidates who are going to succeed rather than candidates who are going to create problems on purpose. Um, mm. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about that, the concept of uh, rights and obligations that you have literally to the sense of democracy, rather than simply saying, hey, I have a right to pick whoever I want. I've got a responsibility to make sure that this works. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. And it comes down again to the purpose of democracy. Um, if the purpose of democracy is simply everybody being able to express their own preferences, whatever they might be, <coughs> then that sense of duty, uh, citizenship duty is, is attenuated, you know, so you can vote for, I don't know, your, your favorite sports team's mascot as a write-in, you know, um, sometimes people do, do things like that. Not if that's, that might be a protest vote, but if it's not, if you're just having, having some fun with it, then uh, arguably you're failing in some of the duties of a citizen. Um, one thing I'd point out just, uh, just for uh, any political theorists who might be watching this is I don't strictly argue for a human right to democracy. Um, but I, I argue that, that it's, it's almost as if we have one because democracy seems to be so important uh, to uh, advancing individual rights. No, that, that's completely fair. I didn't mean to kind of go that direction. But no, no. Yeah, I, I do want to kind of come back full circle now. Uh, we've been talking a lot about democracy. And one of the reasons why I began reading so many books on democracy, doing this podcast, doing my blog, is uh, because I feel like it's, it's a word that has a lot of different meanings for different people, different theorists. It's, sometimes it's used colloquially to justify very different things that are oftentimes contradictory. Um, I'd like to ask you, um, in terms of uh, democracy, uh, if you can provide not so much a definition, but I'd, I'd rather say like a description of what you feel democracy truly is. Hmm. Um, I, I tend to speak in terms of constitutional democracy. That's a very good question um, because I, I feel like um, if the point is to adequately protect, but also to um, you know give adequate input on the specification of the rights we actually have, um, then we begin to look at the mechanisms that might advance that. And so being able to hold your leaders to account is one. Uh, if a leader knows that um, they cannot be removed from office, then that gives them a you know, much freer reign to do what they want to do, regardless of, of um, how it might affect their constituents. Uh, but if they don't, you know, you can hold the rascals to account is, uh, is the old saw. Uh, if you can do that every four years or every seven years, then it makes a big difference. So that's one reason to have democracy. And another reason is because, uh, because of that ability to hold them to account, it makes leaders vote fish. Uh, it makes them actually go out and listen to various uh, constituents. Now, it depends a lot on how your system is constructed. That's one of the uh, concerns that's often raised about the U.S. Electoral College is um, it tends to send um, political leaders, you know, presidential candidates to uh, either the big states that might be in play or the smaller states that might be in play, whereas if a state isn't presumed to be in play, you might never see them. So, you know, these days a Republican candidate might not go to California, uh, for example, or a a Democratic candidate uh, might not go to Texas, although increasingly it seems like it might be in play. Uh, But so for me, it comes down to the kinds of political institutions, the kind of shared political institutions we can have that might advance rights protection. And so at the end of the day, it looks something like a constitutional democracy where you've got principles of rights that are specified in a constitution. So you at least have that, that basic foundation uh, that, um, that guides the democratic process. And you also have um, an independent judiciary that, um, you know, can 
interpret laws according to that constitution and the and the uh, related documents and then you've got other various institutions that help to hold power to account um, so one last thing i would say is i often when i'm talking to students or when i'm just thinking about it i often think of um, the state the government as a very powerful dog right so um, it might uh, protect you but you're never quite sure uh, whether this dog, you know, maybe you got it from a shelter or something and you really don't know what it's, what it's past is like, you really don't know fully what's in its mind. You're never absolutely sure that the dog might not also turn on you. So you've got to find ways to make sure that the dog is appropriately um, controlled, that the dog is, uh, you know, made to do what the dog is supposed to do, which is protect you and and your home whatever you know whatever you might have a dog do um that might be a bad metaphor but uh, it's the one that i keep coming back to because the state is so powerful um and unless it can be held to account um uh, that power tends to expand and threaten individual rights it's interesting you mentioned the constitutional uh democracy have you have you read much on the uh work from tom ginsburg mm, uh no no. Okay. Yeah. It, he gets a lot into, um, he's really interesting. I, I didn't know if you would, because he's more, he's, he's, he's a law professor that crosses into political science mm-hmm. and he and Aziz Hook wrote a really interesting article called how to lose a constitutional democracy in the UCLA law review a few years ago. And then they wrote a book recently, how to save a constitutional democracy, but some of his other works are even really interesting. There's a really interesting group of scholars, uh, Rosalind Dixon's another one that have been Mm -hmm. writing about the idea of uh, constitutional democracies and writing it from almost a legal perspective rather than a political science perspective that's kind of captured my imagination as well. So mm. um, no, there's there's some really good work out there, and there's been a lot of it the last few years that I have to catch up on. I mean, uh, the the truth is that constitutional democracy is under threat around the world. You know, all of the indicators that we have have shown it receding. You know, for the longest time we had this third wave of democracy that was very exciting. Uh, you know, suddenly we had 120 plus uh, countries counted as democracies, and it's been receding for about the last 13 years. Uh, more populist regimes have taken power around the world. So uh, it's uh, now possibly more than any time in recent memory is uh, when there's, there's a real need for these kind of analyses of why this is happening and what might be done about it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Your book is, is very impressive. It's, uh, it always impresses me when I'm reading through a book and I continue to see names of people that I'm like, that I feel like I should probably have read already and should come back to. Uh, you you really kind of go through it. It's very well researched, gets into a lot of uh, a lot of the topics we've talked about today. It's called The Humble Cosmopolitan Rights, Diversity, and Trans-State uh, Democracy. Uh, do you have anything else you want to kind of leave us with? Uh, any thoughts or uh, pieces of wisdom, Dr. Cabrera? Ah, no, I mean, these are great questions, you know, and um, this, uh, the book just um, talks about one small piece of this struggle that that our species uh, seems to have been engaged in, uh, you know, since we, uh, 
since we first began living in political communities, which is um, how to treat each other decently, or and if we're not being treated decently, how to press our interests and press our rights or what might be conceived as rights. And um, I'm just pleased to be able to talk about it with you. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, again, you can uh, please subscribe to the uh, Democracy Paradox podcast. You can also check out some of the other books that I review at uh, www.democracyparadox.com. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Um, and uh, we'll be here again next week for another, uh, another interview. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.